Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration that shares expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Andreas Boyforsby, researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, NIAS, where I primarily focus on Chinese foreign and security policy. I'm delighted to be joined today by Luke Pady, who is a senior researcher at the Danish Institute for International Studies, where his main field of expertise is also Chinese foreign and security policy, focusing specifically on patterns of Chinese trade and investment. He's also senior research fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, University of Oxford, where he heads the Institute's Africa Research. Today, we have invited Luke to talk about his new book titled How China Loses the Pushback Against Chinese Global Ambitions, which is published by Oxford University Press. Some of the key arguments that he makes in the book have also recently been published in the Foreign Policy magazine, if listeners would like a short introduction to his views on the rise of China. So thank you very much for participating in the podcast, Luke. It's great to be here, Andreas. Thanks for having me. So when I came across the title of your book, the first thing that came to mind was Kishore Mapubani's book, also from last year, Has China Won?, in which he lays out a fairly optimistic perspective on China's growing power and influence in the world compared to your book. I realized that a book title tends to overstate the underlying arguments of a book for the sake of debate and visibility, and that the editors also have a say in the matter. But despite all that, I think it's fair to say that your book presents a far more critical perspective on the rise of China. And in the book, you meticulously go through most of the regions in the world, Asia, Africa, Europe, Latin America, to document the emergence of all this pushback against China's global ambitions. Meanwhile, China has weathered the corona crisis better than most countries. It is the largest trading partner of more than 120 countries around the world and is still the main growth engine of the global economy. If we leave aside the US for a minute, could you perhaps start by pointing to some of the strongest indications of this pushback reactions and tell us why the Chinese leadership in Beijing should worry about this trend? Let me start by underlining what the book does not argue. It doesn't argue that China should not or will not play a role in shaping the global economy and global affairs. Neither do I suggest that China is fading away or will become insignificant to the future. Quite the opposite. I think China is a considerable power. It's already an economic superpower, as you point out, with so many countries having China as its largest partner in trade. It's become a major investor globally as well. It has vaulting military strength, particularly in East Asia. And it even has impressive tech capabilities for a middle-income country. And many countries around the world, particularly in the developing world, have cheered on China's rise and supported it for decades on end. But at the same time, in the book, I do recognize that China's foreign policy has changed over the past decade, that China's leadership under President Xi Jinping in particular has deliberately chosen how to project its power in the world in a way that I think undermines its ultimate influence. So we know that the United States under President Trump 
has agitated its relations with China. But in the book, I unpack some of the ways Beijing is doing the same with its relations in the world, that despite this strong economic muscle, despite being the world's largest trader, its main engine of growth, China still punches below its weight in influencing other countries. Some indicators of that are with the world's middle powers. So countries like Japan, India, and those in Europe. When we look at China's relations with those powers, we see upset political ties, some new economic barriers going up, and even in some cases, rising security tensions. So I think the other major powers in the world, beyond the United States, are recognizing that engaging China in some areas of trade, investment, finance, and technology, it does offer benefits, but it can also threaten a country's long-term competitiveness and even their foreign and defense autonomy. So that's where I see um, this pushback, how it's developed in the last decade. And I think we need to recognize that China has been upsetting a lot of its relations with the other major powers in the world. Okay, but I was wondering if you could maybe uh, point to some of the strongest indications of this pushback reaction that we've seen, let's just say, in the past couple of years, apart from the US. Where do you tend to zoom in and say this is a real strong indicator of uh, what you ascribe as this global pushback reaction against uh, China's assertiveness and and growing influence and power uh, in the world? We can start here in the EU. I think over the past, say, five, seven years, we've seen a dramatic change in the nuance in which the EU views its relationship with China. And we've seen growing policies from the European Union, but also from member states that have really put economic relations on the defensive. By that, I mean we've seen the 2019 investment screening mechanism be passed by the EU. But more importantly, we've even seen member states, including Germany, Italy, and others, block Chinese acquisitions of advanced manufacturing companies and tech companies. These are moves that the EU and countries within the EU weren't doing 10, 15 years ago. So there's been a recognition of the competitiveness and the unfair playing field that China is presenting to European companies and industries. So that's an example where China's policies at home and its state support to its companies at home and abroad has undermined one avenue for it to elevate its economic technology capabilities through overseas acquisitions. China's ability to acquire manufacturing and tech companies overseas in the US, in Japan, and now in the EU is really quite constrained compared to what it was 10, 15 years ago. So that's one example. And it's fair to say that the opinion poll from the Pew Research Center confirmed that negative views of China are indeed on the rise in most parts of the world. So this development trend, of course, comes with major variations, and you just pointed to some examples So this pushback comes from what we might call the usual suspects, such as Japan, Vietnam, and India, who have long had their differences with Beijing. 
nor should Beijing be utterly surprised to see U.S. allies, partners such as the, as the U.K., Australia, and Canada also take a prominent part in this pushback reaction. And you also just mentioned some other examples in the EU. But what about countries in China's immediate backyard that have traditionally been more differential to Beijing? Countries such as Cambodia, Laos, Malaysia, Myanmar, Mongolia, and the five Central Asian states. I mean, are there any critical cases of countries where this pushback reaction is somewhat more counterintuitively also on the rise? Some of the countries that China would really expect to be part of its uh, closest allies and friends around the world? That's a great question. I think we have a, a broad recognition that negative perspectives towards China have grown across North America and Europe of late. But I think what's less discussed is the downturn in attitudes towards China among its neighboring countries in the Asia Pacific. And to be honest, if we go back two decades and look at Pew Research surveys, we see that back at the turn of the century, there were majority positive views of China in Japan, in Australia, in South Korea, and that these over the last two decades, attitudes in those countries have fallen, uh, positive attitudes have fallen by the double digits so that there's no longer a majority positive attitude towards China. And it's not only those advanced economies, it's also countries like Indonesia and the Philippines, where we've seen a, a drastic drop in positive attitudes towards China. And these are China's neighbors countries that know it best, as you mentioned, countries that have long welcomed its growing prosperity, countries that are, have high dependencies in trade on Chinese markets. But they've seen at least public attitudes become more suspicious of Chinese investments and particularly cautious about China's expanding military role in Asia. Now, this isn't to say that everyone looks negatively upon China across the global South. And you point out several countries in its near uh, vicinity, there are positive attitudes towards China. China offers new trade, new investment opportunities for these developing countries. But at the same time, I think it's a fallacy that often in the press here in Europe and in North America, we hear about the U.S. versus China or the West versus China, where the reality is that many of China's large neighbors who were once quite positive towards its development have more concerns with its economic and military direction. Yeah, I totally agree with that. But if we shift gears a bit, I would also like to hear your thoughts on the underlying drivers of this global trend that you document in your book. Uh, so what is driving this pushback against the rise of China from your perspective? Coming back to the US, is this reaction primarily orchestrated by Washington as part of a hegemonic struggle for supremacy itself rooted in structural security dynamics of the international system, as well as ideological differences perhaps between Washington and Beijing? Or should we rather see this pushback as a sort of a decentralized button-up response from various countries around the world, fueled by local concerns about China's more assertive foreign policy approach over the past decade or so? I think every country has its own reasons. So those countries that have become more critical of China have different 
drivers for this change of attitude and change of policy towards China. So for the United States, of course, it sees a rival to its global power. In Europe, I think it's more a case of the competitiveness and the, the lack of market reciprocity between Europe and China that upsets European policymakers the most. In Asia, there are the security concerns, the territorial disputes with India, Japan, and others, and particularly in the South China Sea. So there's a variety of reasons. Pushback comes for different reasons. And therefore, I think it's more of a decentralized, bottom-up response rather than a U.S. arranged and orchestrated pushback. And I think it's a mistake to believe that the U.S. is so capable that it can convince other major powers and developing countries to become part of some united pushback against China just because the Americans want it. I think that's a disservice to the reality of the relationship between these countries and China uh, that has nothing to do often with the United States. I think we're bombarded with media stories and opinion pieces about U.S. versus China competition, U.S. versus China, whether that will lead to a new Cold War. And this deserves attention and analysis. But China is developing its relations with the rest of the world as well. And I don't think we should lose sight of the importance of those relationships. And we need to sort of dig down and unpack local connections and discords between China and other countries. The U.S. did not create territorial disputes between China and its neighbors in the South China Sea or between China and India. The U.S. is not responsible for Europe's concerns with China's economic behavior. So U.S. pressure on other countries can make a difference, I think. You know, we've seen countries in Eastern Europe, for example, change their policies towards engaging China's telecom company Huawei because of U.S. pressure and concerns that not siding with the U.S. might upset how these countries can defend themselves against possible Russian aggression. So U.S. pressure is important, but it's far from the whole story. There's a lot more going on. And I think one of the main drivers for myself in writing the book was to tell many of those stories for those relationships that China has on its own with these other countries and how they're becoming more complicated. All right. So some people have over the past decade referred to China as an economic bully, usually citing Beijing's economic coercion against countries that have crossed some of China's red lines, such as the Philippines, South Korea, Canada, and most recently Australia. In the case of Australia, it was Canberra's call for an independent international investigation into the COVID-19 pandemic. In the case of Canada, it was the arrest and detention of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. South Korea crossed China's red lines by installing THAAD, a U.S. missile defense system. And with respect to the Philippines, I think it was the territorial disputes in the South China Sea that caused some uh, reactions from Beijing. You also discuss some of these examples in your book, and you make the very interesting point that we shouldn't worry too much about China's economic coercion. Why is that? And why did, for instance, South Korea eventually reach a common understanding with Beijing on that issue in 2017 if such pressure doesn't work? What One might even add, why would Beijing 
risk alienating other countries if such measures are largely ineffective or even counterproductive. I think I'll try to get straight some of the findings of my research on China's economic coercion first. The findings show that it's not that China's coercion doesn't necessarily work, but that targeted countries, and I think the Western media at large, often exaggerates the levels of economic pressure that China actually places on those countries that you listed that have crossed China's foreign and security policy red lines. So it doesn't mean that a targeted country still might not feel the pressure and capitulate. It's just that it's actually a very narrow, small percentage of trade and investment that is targeted and blocked by China. And that, I think, is central to understand because the price of an independent foreign and security policy is not as high as we might perceive. Or reversely, countries that do capitulate demonstrate that the issues that China's upset with don't hold so much value for these countries. With the South Korea case, very briefly, I think at that point, it was the Moon government coming in that had a policy that was more standoffish from working closely with the US on defense and security matters. And it was simply because the new government was coming in with it, which already had that policy, is why you saw a limit on the THAAD defense systems coming in. But a defense system already came in under the previous government. The new government had a different policy and it might appear that they capitulated, but this was their policy anyways. That's my reading. We can unpack that. You can unpack that. But I wanted to also give an example of what I mean by the fact that China doesn't put a lot of economic pressure on countries. And I'll use Australia because I think it's the most recent one. And we've heard a lot of media stories about the bans and high tariffs that China's placed on Australian exports, including barley, coal, lobster, and, and other goods. And when this first occurred, Australian and international media reports pointed to some 20 to $25 billion of goods exports to China that were under threat. A year or, or so later, we see that only around $5 billion has actually been lost from this dispute. So China, for example, never blocked Australian iron ore because it desperately needs it for its own construction industry, for its own economic stimulus. And this points to the fact that China has interests too, that it doesn't want to upset its growth. It doesn't want to upset its industries. And it often targets countries with partial sanctions, not like the Americans have done to many countries over the past many decades. Many of the goods that were targeted in Australia also found new markets. So China can find alternative suppliers of some products, but those that are blocked can also find alternative buyers. And Australia found alternative markets in India for its coal, for its barley and other products. Japan, Middle East, Southeast Asian countries bought up a lot of those goods because these are fungible commodities. If China's not buying them, there's still demand out there globally and someone else will. So at the end of the day, the pressure on Australia 
is not as strong as we often see it portrayed as in the media. And whether or not you agree with Australia's current approach to China, it demonstrates that China also is sensitive to its own economic growth, its own economic trade. And this carries on, I think, throughout the last decade among the cases that where we have seen China targeting countries. Final point I'll make is that I do notice an escalation in China's trade measures from Norway and South Korea. There was really a narrow amount of goods that were targeted. And if you compare that with Canada and Australia, you see an expansion, nothing overly significant, but an expansion nonetheless. And this points to one future caution, and that is China has a self-sufficiency drive at the moment, policy drive. It wants to become more independent, particularly in high-tech industries, but also more independent from external products that it requires for its economic growth. And if it's successful in doing that, I think we might see Beijing become more willing to apply economic pressure. So I don't think we should necessarily ignore China's economic coercion because it might escalate in the future. And it's imperative that I think targeted countries and those that aren't targeted have a plan because even when the targeted countries don't face a tremendous amount of damage, there are still industries and livelihoods that are upset, like the Australian lobster industry, for example. And these industries, they need new financing, maybe new political risk insurance to help them get over these periods. And at the same time, in the long term, there needs to be more work done in diversifying these markets that are highly dependent on China, such as Australian lobster, for example, that there are other markets that can buy these products and that governments like the Australian, like the Canadian, the Korean government work more with their companies and industries to ensure that their products are more diversified so that future Chinese pressure won't be as significant as it might be. I agree. And I think there is some really important policy advice emerging from what you're just saying there. So a related topic I would like to bring up is the so-called dependency myth in relation to China. And I think you already touched upon it with your Australia example. So maybe we could focus instead on the European case where you have also previously talked about the dependency myth. So what do you mean by it? And if I could ask this way, who is pushing this myth? And maybe also a question more to have in the back of your head. Do you think the now stalled investment treaty between Brussels and Beijing would have made any difference in that regard? If that is even a major concern in what is going on here from your perspective? So what I mean by the dependency myth is, again, I feel that because of China's rapid growth to become the second largest economy in the world, the first by some measures, we have an inflated idea of how important China is to European trade and investment interests. The numbers show something completely different. Of course, China has risen to become a large trading partner for the EU at large, for certain European countries. 
But just because China's market has grown so fast doesn't mean that all European economies have the same access and have the same dependency on China. So Europe trades around 1.7 billion euros with China every day. That sounds like a tremendous sum, and it is to you or I or most businesses out there as well. But the EU trades over $30 billion each day in total with itself, with countries within the European Union, and with its external partners. So China represents around 6% of the EU's total trade. Close to two-thirds of EU trade is actually done between member states. When I raise these numbers, I often hear, well, Germany trades a lot with China, and Germany is the largest economy here in the EU. What about it? Isn't it pulling the EU towards this dependency myth? Of course, China is Germany's largest trading partner. It represents around 8% of Germany's goods trade. But the US represents 7% of Germany's goods trade, and the Netherlands the same amount, and France 6%, and Poland and Italy are not far behind. So even Germany has quite a diverse group of trading partners, not a China dependency. Even when you look at growth, so new euros, between 2015 and 2019, Germany generated 15% of its trade growth from China. If you take that number by itself, it sounds extremely impressive. But if you look at the broader picture, which is what we need to do when we think about our relationship with China, you can see that Italy and Poland combined had the same type of trade growth for Germany as China did. So sounds a little bit less impressive now that China's an important part, but only one part of Germany and the EU's bigger trading picture. Another common retort I receive to the dependency myth is that, well, China is the largest manufacturer in the world, and there are just raw supply chain dependencies on parts for cars and other products that we just need to get from China. But even these critical dependencies are only in selected industries, electronics, consumer goods, pharmaceuticals. And the EU is actually advancing plans to lower some of these dependencies. And even if you account for these really critical dependencies in certain industries, you have to remember that China benefits from this trade too. It exports more to the EU than the EU exports to China. And it's not interested in disrupting this. China has never blocked its own exports from going to Australia or Canada or some of the countries that it's targeted with restrictions. So it's still interested in this trade. It's not that we in Europe are solely dependent on China. China also wants trade to continue. So who might be advancing the idea that China is more important to our economic welfare in Europe than we think it is? I think there it's corporate interests because there are large German companies like Volkswagen in particular, but also some outside of Germany, like Airbus, that have high sales dependencies in China. So a large amount of their sales, 10, 20%, some even more, are made in China. So they're going to lobby hard to ensure that they're not targeted 
by the Chinese in any dispute with Europe. And that's, I think, where you get this myth, because these companies, they have the ears of European leaders. And that's where I think we have this misconception of China's importance to European welfare at large. And I think the investment deal to finish up, if it is passed by the European Parliament, if it's implemented by both sides, if it's enforced in the end, it does open new market access opportunities for European companies. But under specific sectors, under specific conditions, where often investment levels are pointed to that they need to cross a certain threshold for that openness to take place. But so I think it would increase investments from Europe to China, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee that those investments help European prosperity and welfare. That we need to have a better idea of how our trade and investment with China actually helps European welfare at home. And I think that's something we need as researchers and journalists to unpack more, because this is a critical question. If Volkswagen builds a new factory outside of Shanghai, how does that help anyone in Europe beyond Volkswagen's shareholders? And I think as politics in Germany might be undergoing a change in the coming year or two, and the Green Party might take a larger role in the German government, we might see some of these questions receiving more detailed answers than we have in the past decade or so. Yes, I agree. And I think also maybe it was a wake-up call recently to many European leaders when the Baiting up the answer, so to speak, by responding to Brussels' uh, Xinjiang-related sanctions with what has been widely regarded as a disproportionate set of counter-sanctions. But I want finally, um, since both of us are located in Copenhagen, Denmark, to uh, turn our attention to the Danish-Chinese relationship. One doesn't have to study hard to also find some signs of pushback against China and Denmark over the past couple of years whether in regard to 5G and Huawei, Chinese investments in Greenland, or official Danish reactions to the political unrest in Hong Kong. So interestingly, uh, Denmark and China have been unable to update their comprehensive strategic partnership program, which happened to expire by the end of 2020. So while some Ministry of Foreign Affairs officials suggest that the delay has been caused by the corona pandemic, the recently strained bilateral relationship also seemed to play a role in this. So does it make sense for Denmark, in your view, to maintain a comprehensive strategic partnership with China? And how should we calibrate the relationship if it were up to you? Well, if I was making the decisions, I would say, yes, continue the strategic partnership program, but be more perceptive to the challenges that now exist in the relationship between Denmark and China. This isn't the same relationship that existed back in 2008 or so when the agreement was first penned. And we need to be honest about that and see it clearly for what it is rather than trying to just push it in the corner and ignore it. Because Denmark and China, I think this agreement will eventually go through. I think there are very strong forces behind it that want to see it address climate change and green crop cooperation in particular. I don't see the use in breaking ties with China. But at the same time, 
Denmark should remember that on top of cooperation on addressing climate change, we also need to be aware of the competition that exists from the Chinese side in renewable industries. There is green competition for Denmark coming out of China. China has this immense industrial base that has previously laid waste to European competitors in the solar power industry because Chinese companies could exploit their preferential access to the Chinese market. They could exploit state support to drive prices down both in China and abroad and really undercut German and other European solar power companies and really push them out of the market. We don't want this to occur with Danish companies in the windmill and other green industries. And I think the Danish government needs to be aware that we need to cooperate with China, yes, but we also are faced with competition from China and that we need to ensure that not only the large Danish companies like Vestas have a strong position to work from, but also the smaller manufacturers in the value chain of the windmill industry, of green tech, that they are also given a level playing field to compete against with their Chinese competition and competition outside of China's coming from the US and other markets as well. So I think continue with the strategic partnership program. It might help to structure and advance relations. It may not. It might just be window dressing. After all, Australia has a comprehensive strategic partnership program with China as well. So it's not something that necessarily dictates the direction of the relationship, but it is something that at least keeps lines of communication open and we shouldn't cut those off. Okay, so you are recommending strategic partnership, not comprehensive, but rather smarter in the future. And I think I agree with you on that. All right, I think we'll end today's podcast here. You've been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast with me, Lars Boyforsby, and senior researcher at the Danish Institute for International Studies, Luke Pady. Luke, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. And to those of you who haven't yet taken a look at his new book, I can highly recommend it. Thanks very much, Andreas. Cool. Thanks a lot. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.